Hello, everyone. Jamie here, and welcome to the sixth episode of SFN Shorts, featuring interviews with early career researchers that I conducted last November at the Society for Neuroscience Conference in Washington, D.C. You can follow along with the posters for this episode of SFN Shorts and find the previous five episodes on the website at inplainenglishpod.org. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. The first interview for this episode features Dr. Carlo Malaga, a assistant professor at Bucknell University. His poster was discussing deep brain stimulation for treating Parkinson's disease and specifically um, using new computational methods to optimize deep brain stimulation electrode placement for Parkinson's patients. Can you just start by introducing yourself? Yeah, so I'm Carlo Malga. I'm an assistant professor in the biomedical engineering department over at Bucknell University, and that's in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. The work that I'm presenting here, it's deep brain stimulation for treating patients with Parkinson's disease. And so the idea is for patients who have exhausted kind of all other forms of treatment, you know, usually you start medication, no one wants to get brain surgery, right? It's kind of the first option. Um, once kind of all other treatment options have, you know, found to be not sufficient, then sometimes people may opt for getting deep brain stimulation. The idea is you're taking these electrodes and you're implanting them in specific region of the brain and then stimulating that region with pulses of electricity. And then somehow that results in symptoms being alleviated. In terms of the underlying mechanisms, still a lot of questions there. Uh, a lot of the focus of my work is more on kind of the clinical aspect of it. So although we don't necessarily understand the mechanisms, it's tried and true that it works. And so the idea here is how can we optimize the treatment to ensure it works more consistently. So I guess really quickly, historically, like, did someone just put an electrode in someone's brain and was like, whoa, that works? <laughs> or like, what was the process? How did they figure out that it did work if we don't know the mechanism? Yeah, so kind of the, the discovery from my understanding, understanding of it was kind of unintentional, right? The idea was even before how they would treat some of these conditions is you would lesion the brain and you'd cut, right? And so the thing is, before they would cut, they would want to make sure we're not going to cut something important. And so then what they would do is stimulate and see how does the person respond? And then if it wasn't like, oh, now their speech is like slurring, probably let's not cut that, right? But what they found is when they stimulated, oh wait, like their tremors alleviate going away, like what's up? And so then that that's really kind of the origins of DBS. It's like, oh, we can actually treat the symptoms with the stimulation itself. We don't have to cut. And that's kind of the marketing is that it's reversible. Because you turn the stimulator off and then the tremors come right back. And so I think that's also an important point to make clear to people considering this is that it's not a cure, it's a treatment. And yeah. so minute your stimulator's off, tremors are right back. And so um, really what a lot of my work is focused on is given the tools we have today, how can we use those to their fullest potential while we wait for the rest of the field, all the neuroscientists <laughs> to find the cure for Parkinson's disease, right? Yeah. And so, but yeah, really the idea is more on this kind of individualized treatment uh, with DBS. How can we kind of personalize that more to, to make sure everyone benefits uh, to the fullest extent possible. I guess kind of getting back more specific here, the the idea is that when you think of Parkinson's disease compared to, let's say, another movement disorder like essential tremor, 
it's characterized by many different symptoms. Right? Central tremor, it's, it's in the name. You got tremor to right. deal with, right? Of course, there are different, different types, but you could have two Parkinson's disease patients and they could be dealing with very different things. And so, like a lot of things in medicine, sometimes you don't really factor that into decisions. You kind of just have a default treatment approach, right? Right, yeah. And so a lot of my work is focused on kind of more symptom-specific, symptom-informed targeting. Mm -hmm. So depending on how a patient presents, you know, what's their symptom profile, can we use that to kind of tailor how we deliver the stimulation? Yeah. And so that gets back, I guess, to the fundamental questions. How do we figure out what we're stimulating in the brain, right? It's, it's in the name here, deep brain stimulation. And so you can't really, you know, go in and put more probes to measure and see kind of what you're stimulating. <laughs> it's, I guess, part of the limitations when you're, you know, in the clinical setting versus just uh, the laboratory setting. And so, because we can't make direct measurements of, let's say, like the electric fields in the brain when you stimulate, we lean on computation modeling to simulate those. And the idea is, can we simulate the fields in the brain that are caused by the deep brain stimulation? And we kind of use this as a alternative measure as opposed to active contact position. So this is kind of what's commonly reported is where are we, where are we stimulating the brain? Oh, the active contact is there. Here are the XYZ coordinates. That's where we stimulate. What that kind of glosses over is that stimulation is not just localized to that electrode. It actually spreads in all three dimensions throughout the tissue. And so that's what our modeling is trying to capture is give you kind of that 3D representation of the full stimulation field so you can see exactly what neural structures you are directly modulating. Right, how far it's getting out there and so like what's inside of that sphere. Exactly, because for example, you could have a contact inside the STN, but you're probably not just activating the STN. Yeah. Right? Active contact wouldn't tell you that though. Right. And so, so that's what we use here. And basically we, we make these uh, tissue activation models to create those stimulation profiles. And so kind of the, the neat thing about these is that they're all tailored to the individual, meaning that we use primarily imaging data to build these. Okay. So all the anatomical information that's coming from their own MRI images, okay. all the electrode localization that's done from their CT images taken post-op, and then even the electrical properties of the brain tissue, we estimate that from diffusion tensor imaging. Okay. So it's a special type of MRI, but it's focused on measuring diffusion of water through the brain. But you may have heard like the electricity water analogy, right? Like you think of current flowing just like water flowing. Yeah. And so it's easier, you know, if you think of white matter to flow down axons and through. So we kind of use that as a proxy to measure electrical conductivity. Put all that together and then basically we can then simulate the fields in the brain. Once we had that, then we could actually quantify things like, oh, What's the overlap between the stimulation profile and the STN in this case? And so. And that's like just like a brain area. Exactly. Okay. Yep, so it's part of the basal ganglia, and that's one of the main targets for treating Parkinson's disease. An alternative one is the globus pallidus internus. So you may see some other, and I think it's more kind of center clinician specific in terms of which one they choose, but there's like a lot of things out there saying, like, which one's better? 
there's no like definitive answer. But at least the, the neurosurgeons I work with, they primarily do STN, uh, subthalamic nucleus, DBS. Um, once we actually got to analyzing the data, right, so we quantified activation in different regions of the subthalamic nucleus, and then we relate that to improvement based on assessments taken from the Movement Disorder Society's Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale or MDSU-PDRS. So it's a clinical assessment they use, again, to see how the patient's responding to DBS. And so we used only the gait-related outcomes in this, in this study. And what we found was that basically, the more anterior that stimulation was being delivered, the better improvement you had in gait-related outcomes. Okay. There was no relationship in the other directions. Um, and then when we repeated this analysis, but now using active contact position as our main stimulation location metric, then all those relationships disappeared. Okay. So we kind of think of it as kind of this, again, just highlighting the limitation of not considering the full picture of the stimulation. This is getting you a more like global picture of what you're stimulating, yeah. Exactly. I guess putting it all together, takeaway message here, we're trying to say is if you have a patient, let's say primarily dealing with gait-related uh, symptoms, uh, all other things kind of not, uh, not as pressing, then maybe consider more anterior stimulation okay. uh, to improve those, those gait symptoms. Um, this has been kind of corroborated by some recent studies actually looking at alternative targets. So I mentioned subthalamic nucleus, GPI, uh, globus pallidus. They're looking at others as well, including the substantia nigra. And the thing is, relative to the STN, that happens to be anterior to it and just below it. Yeah. So there could be possible kind of co-activation, co-stimulation of these structures. Maybe that's what's giving us the effect there. Right. But that's just one potential explanation for, for these findings. We haven't specifically looked into that yet. So is there then like future research that's going to work, that's going to look at the relationship between other symptoms, not just the movement symptoms and the location? That's the goal. Yeah. So a lot of this, one thing that we don't kind of highlight here is that, right, there's also been side effects associated with anterior stimulation. And so really it's a, it's an optimization problem. And I don't think there's one spot that's just going to be perfect everything. So you, it's really balancing all these things together. But yeah, that, that's really the goal is not just motor symptoms or motor side effects, but even kind of non-motor, the cognitive side effects as well. Like, how can you also assess those? But the point is, at least with this type of framework, you could look into it. Yeah. It's just we need the, the data. And you could create more like clinical practice guidelines that's like, okay, you know, your patient kind of has this constellation of symptoms and, you know, putting that together with the data, we see that these patients could benefit the most from this kind of placement, right? Exactly. Okay. Yep. So, again, the, it's just like in general, kind of this more personalized medicine, right? Yeah. So how can we better tailor the treatment to the individual? And so I think the, the goal looking forward is, again, this was all done retrospectively. But again, what we'd like to do is prospective studies actually validate our models because all this stuff is built apart from the CT scan, but it's all pre-op pre imaging data. So we could build these in advance and the surgeons plan the trajectory beforehand. So we could build these models and run through a bunch of different simulations. And even before they've gone and received the procedure, see like, hey, this might be, right. try this first, this might work, rather than kind of trial and error. Right, to predict like what's gonna be the best. Okay. 
for that patient. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is super fascinating and very cool. No, thank you. Yeah, and thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. Oh yeah, no problem. The next interview for this episode features Dr. Kyurim Kang, a postdoctoral researcher at Johns Hopkins University. Her research focuses on music therapy for dementia patients and understanding how music therapy can be used as part of dementia treatment to both improve memory and improve psychological symptoms such as depression. Can you first uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, my name is Q, and actually my full name is Q Rim Gang, and you can just go by the name of Q, and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow and also neurologic music therapist at the uh, Johns Hopkins Center for Music and Medicine. Very cool. Yeah, so can you tell me a bit more about that research? Sure. So as I mentioned that I'm a, I'm a like, dual role as a researcher and the clinician as a music therapist. I'm always trying to make a balance between the research pr- perspective and clinical perspective because like from the research perspective, like it's very strict and it's very controlled. But then if we want to apply those mechanisms into their clinical population and daily life, it's different story, right? So that's why we wanted to see not only for the research aspect to see some brain changes before and after music therapy sessions, but then also we wanted to implicate this study to their daily life. So for example, like our key is that not only having the um, mild cognitive impairments and early early dementia participants, but, but then also their caregivers so that they can have some bonding by using music to focus on their autobiographical memory. So our purpose of the study is to investigate the like effectiveness of individual virtual music therapy. So music therapy is conducted via Zoom um, sessions for enhancing the autobiographical memory and their neuropsychiatric symptoms like a behavior like depression or anxiety symptoms with the individual for mild um, cognitive impairments and mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. The good for this study is that since they um, given the characteristic of the virtual music therapy they can connect elsewhere like they can connect from home or some yeah. vacation home or you know whatever wherever but then we definitely have two on-site visits like visit one pre and post before and after music therapy sessions so so basically for the research our the ultimate goal of the research is to disseminating and have this protocol or whatever to replicate to another study and help and contribute to the community right but then if we we have like lots of visit, but then uh, lots of study protocol in person. We may limit to our uh, recruitment for the more like a local person, but then given this our um, characteristic of virtual music therapy, they can only require uh, they only require two, two visits. So that's why I think that's the, one of the strength of this study. So we are collecting their brain activities as well as their neuropsychiatric symptom again about their quality of life anxiety and their autobiographical memory level and then depression before and after of music therapy and then we have for the 16 virtual music therapy session we have 30 minutes twice a week for eight weeks so a total of 16 and for the not only to see that structured uh, brain area changes before and after music therapy we want to also see some like different how different music stimuli for example like familiar music, unfamiliar music, and familiar music, but like a scramble music, which could be the active control music stimuli, can induce different uh, brain patterns. So that's how we are doing. 
And here we can tell, actually technically tell the all the conclusion at this moment because this is the like just average data due to the uh, this is very prelim data. Yeah. So we have five participants for this behavior data and see that um, side this is the, about the anxiety level and this is about the de uh, depression. <laughs> and before and after music therapy session, we see that decreased pattern. So okay. hopefully, um, I mean this is not significant if um, significantly decreased yet because we didn't even attempt to analyze the stat, but then we see this decreased pattern after music therapy, 16 virtual music therapy for anxiety and depression level. Okay. So in terms of the, uh, the brain data, Again, we cannot conclude at this point because since we have like only one individual, each more like a role brain activity here. Yeah. But then also the important thing is there's a lot of research, like music related research for music perception and cognition, but then there's um, like not many studies to collect uh, like a music related questionnaire because for example, like depending on their background and their musical exposure, like a level of musical exposure, that might the key factor or very huge factor to induce the different musical, I mean, brain pattern. So that's why we also collect the um, music sophistication index, which is Goldsmith's um, sophistication music level. So that understand, we can understand like um, their musical background and current exposure level of the music listening. So here you see that we can just here, we cannot conclude it, but then just make the story here. Yes. Here, you see that red is after music therapy, more activation to familiar music. And okay. uh, blue is the after music therapy, more activation to unfamiliar music. So blue is unfamiliar and more activation to unfamiliar, and red is more activation to familiar. So okay. here, I know here, again, we cannot say this reason for this and that, but then if you see one and three, we see some like a great balance between the red and blue here, but then we see participant two, we have like very red dominant. So we definitely had to look at like why. Right. So we saw the that Goldsmith music sophistication data, and then participant two had a, the person, he is the like trumpet player for the oh. six to eight, like a very professional musical performance. So compared to those participants, more musicianship, show some different pattern of music, um, the, the arousal of the brain activists. So with this figure, we cannot again conclude the conclusion, but then we we now see that the importance of those kind of like a music related questionnaire and their experiences. Right. And another thing that we were trying to do is the connectivity. So how the within and between brain area is that, um, connected like greater connection or weaker connection here. So red is higher connection connectivity and greater connectivity and blue is the less uh, connectivity. But unfortunately here, we don't see any red right. here, right? But then here we we hypothesize that like uh, like default mode network, which is related to the like um, autobiographical memory and auditory uh, mechanism might be had a higher connectivity after music therapy, but here all blue, right? blue or at least white. So, so far we didn't have like, uh, didn't met our hypothesis, but then I'm kind of like trying to interpret it like the other way. Definitely I need to dig in more previous research, but then for example, like I believe that always the stronger connectivity
activity doesn't indicate good one. For example, right. like after music therapy, they might have like a need less effort to connect each other so that they may, you know, their connectivity can be reduced. I don't know, but that's kind of like one of the interpretation and storyline that I can make it so far. Right. So for the future consideration, definitely more data collection and more. Um, so we are keep uh, recruiting actively the participation, I mean participants. And the good thing is that we are collaborating with the psychiatric department. So Dr. Rosenberg directly refer his patient to us. So we don't have to additional screening or so. And then also there's, there's a lot of important factor. So not only for the music background, but also since we have a like different um, customized musical in, um, stimuli, maybe for example, participant one, their favorite music is like um, hip hop music. And right. participant two's familiar music is like a piano, like a very like a non-lyric music. So those kind of like different stimuli also induce different brain patterns. Yeah, difficult to compare between them because you don't know what's the effect of the music versus like the different kind of music versus what's the effect of just listening to music in general. So speaking of that, we need a lot of patience so that we can at least do some cluster analysis. So that's going to be the key. I mean, the interpretation data, as you know, it's always the, yeah, the thing. But yeah, I mean, also definitely we need to see some correlations between the behavior aspects and the brain changes. So lots of things to unfold here. Yeah, for sure. And then did you or have other people tested like if the virtual music therapy improves like actual memory? That's a good question. But then our focus is because memory has also different types of memory, right? But then rather than in, um, instead of working memory, we are focusing on the autobiographical memory. So we are also collecting the qualitative data about the autobiographical memory. Okay. So that's the one thing that this study focus um, can yeah. focus. But then, yeah, definitely memory skill, like cognitive aspects, more like an executive function. Like even for the healthy population, I see that there's a lot of research out there to see some differences between before and after for their working memory skills as well. This is super interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. The final interview for this episode features Tanya Lugo, a graduate student at UCLA in the lab of Gina Poe. Her research focuses on studying the link between opioids, sleep disturbances, and memory. In this study, she was focusing on how rodents that had been administered oxycodone performed on subsequent memory tasks. Could you start out by introducing yourself? Yeah, so my name is Tanya Lugo. I'm from the Gina, I'm from Gina Poe's lab. And so our lab mostly focuses on sleep. And in every in every project that Gina Poe has, we look at sleep in different angles. And in my project, we looked at the effects of opioids and uh, sleep, learning, and memory. And so the main idea or the purpose of my project is to investigate the impact of chronic oxycodone injections and withdrawal on sleep quality and two learning systems, right? Because there are, there are different types of learning. And so in our case, we're looking at hippocampal dependent and striatal learning. Okay. And just for the, the audience, those are two different areas of the brain. Yes, exactly. Those are two different areas of the brain. And so they perform different uh, behavioral tasks okay. or performance. Yeah. And so the main idea or what we expected to see is that performance in the object location 
regression memory task, which uh, is dependent on the hippocampus, uh, will be uh, neg negatively affected after oxycodone administration. Whereas the TMAs, which is a, a task that is striatum dependent, um, will improve after oxycodone administration. Okay. And so overall, what we did is uh, we had these rats, rats perform these learning tasks before and after oxycodone. And we gave these rats seven days of three mix per kick uh, oxycodone IP injections, and then after those seven days, they went uh, under. They went underwent spontaneous withdrawal. Okay, but then they weren't performing the task while they were withdrawing, they right? Yeah, they weren't. And so what you see here on this poster is basically uh, their performance in these different tasks before and after oxycodone, and what you're also seeing is male versus female differences. Okay. And so what was prominent in this study is that the animals perform a lot worse in the object location memory task after oxycodone administration, okay. as seen here. Okay, so they remember where the object is like less well. Yes, yeah, so ideally in the object location memory task, they are exposed to two objects, 24 hours, then uh, after 24 hours, the object is moved to a different location. And so in a normal rat, you expect them to uh, explore the object that was moved, and that's because uh, they love novel things, and so they'll just kind of look, they'll be a lot more uh, uh, more engaged in the novel object. Okay, so after 24 hours, again, then you have a novel object and then the moved object, and so then you would expect them to look at the no. novel object, and the moved object is now no longer like novel or interesting. Yes, exactly. And so this is data from the object location memory task. Okay. Now, what was interesting is that in the novel object recognition task, there weren't any differences pre and post. Okay. Basically, that they were able to recognize that a novel object was in their environment, um, regardless whether they received oxy. Now, what we did see uh, that was different is that the males seem to be exploring this novel object a lot more than the females. Now, in the teammates' task, what we see is that the females are actually performing better in this task on day two than the males. Okay. But day one and three doesn't seem to uh, have any effect, yeah. Okay. And the test days, is this before or after? This is after. So everything in purple is basically okay. uh, the task that has been done after oxycodone. Okay. Yeah. Now here on this graph, what you're seeing is how long it took for the rat to complete a trial. So yeah. this latency in seconds. And so you see uh, that on day one, that the males are much faster at making a choice than the females. Now day two wasn't significant, but it seems to be trending in that also the males seem to be uh, making a choice a lot faster than the females. Wait, are the males making a choice faster or slower? Oh wait, sorry, so, uh, slower. Okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. I, sorry I, I inverted them, yeah. And um, we didn't see any differences on day three. Okay. And for the teammates, did you test it before the oxycodone administration as well, or? No, so what you see here, these are rats that received oxycodone treatment. So okay. all, everybody here had oxycodone. Okay. And so the next step is to basically rerun this test using controls. Okay. So animals that didn't receive any oxycodone.
yeah, to see like if the oxycodone had then had an effect on their yeah. ability to perform the task. Yeah. And then everything else is within subjects. So we were able to compare the animal's behavior before and yeah. after oxy. Yeah. So in general, then like, what were the conclusions from? Yeah. So we know that sleep is important for spatial memory consolidation. I mean, we know that sleep is important for memory spatial for spatial memory consolidation. And so if these rats are receiving oxycodone and their sleep is being disturbed, then there might be changes in their memory, right? Okay. And so that's what we see here in okay. that in our oxytreated rats, their memory, their spatial memory seems to be uh, affected negatively. Okay, yeah, yeah. But you don't know whether or not the TMA's memory is affected yet. Yeah, not yet. We could only say that the males and female, the males and females are performing differently in certain days of the task. Now, what was interesting is that the performance in the novel object recognition task seems to remain intact, right? It doesn't seem to change. And and that's because we think that the reason why we don't see any differences is that because the NOR is not hippocampal, is hippocampal independent, then it may be that, you know, that the sleep doesn't have to do anything with the NOR task. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So is there something specific about the interaction of like opioids and sleep that affects the hippocampus, but not yes. other areas? Yes, not other areas of the brain. Okay. Well, maybe the striatum. Okay. What we were anticipating is that, well, if they have a deficit in their hippocampal dependent learn, uh, learning strategies, they might rely on other learning strategies okay. heavier than before Oxy. Okay. And so we anticipated to see them perform better on this teammates task, which is a striatum dependent task. Um, but we can't really say that as of now that, you know, because we don't have any controls. Yeah. I guess in terms of like, how well does this like translate to, to like uh, people who are taking oxycodone? Like do people who are taking oxycodone have these like deficits specifically in their like spatial memory? Yeah. So um, as of now, the literature does suggest that addicts do have uh, learning memory deficits and that also if you have sleep disturbances then you're more likely to engage in um, drug intake behaviors. Okay so it's yeah. kind of like a negative bi-directional. Yeah. Right. You're yeah. like not sleeping well and so you're taking oxy and then you're taking oxy sleep. So you're not sleeping well and so okay. that interaction will affect the learning and memory and okay. so the next step is to uh, finish um, the sleep experiments and so in the sleep experiments we hope that we could correlate the learning with the with their quality of sleep okay that's what we have so far um, so you're gonna then you're going to actually analyze like their sleep quality yes definitely their sleep quality and other hallmarks of sleep so sleep spindles these these sleep spindles are important for memory consolidation and maybe there is a chance that they might be less sleep spindles after or during oxycodone administration. And so because we see less of these sleep spindles, then maybe that would explain why we see learning deficits. Right. And, and why they have worse memory. Yeah. And so then also you said uh, in your future directions that you're going to analyze estrus data, so like hormonal data in female rats. Yeah, so do you think those hormones are impacting, having some interaction with sleep and oxycodone? Yeah, that's because in the literature, it has been said that different stages of sleep uh, correspond to how well they're going to perform in certain learning learning task. So I don't know at the top of my head what uh, what estrus day 
corresponds to better learning or better spatial learning. Um, but I do know that certain days are better for certain types of learning. Okay. Yeah, yeah that, that would be interesting to correlate whether it was the estrus date that also had an impact on, on this learning right. task. So if the if the female my, uh, rats, sorry, um, would do better or worse depending on like what day of their cycle. Exactly, okay. yeah, that's another direction that we're gonna take. Yeah, really cool, thank you so thank much. Thank you, appreciate it. Thank you all so much for tuning in to the sixth episode of SFN Shorts. Once again, you can follow along with the posters and see them on the website at inplainenglishpod.org. Next week, we will have a full-length episode featuring Alejandro Gonzalez talking about economics and degrowth. So stay tuned for that. That was an amazing conversation. Oh, and one more thing. I recently recorded an episode with the wonderful folks over at the Science Night podcast, um, and we talked about marijuana and VR goggles for mice and so much more. That is going to be released on January 31st. So I will put a link in the description and on the website when that is live and available. So go check them out. Science Night. They are a awesome podcast and super fun to talk to. Our music is by Sam Brunwasser. You can find more of his work at soundcloud.com slash visualsnowbeats. As always, you can download the paper and read the transcriptions at inplainenglishpod.org. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PlainEnglishSci. That's P-L-A-I-N-E-N-G-L-I-S-H-S-C-I. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of In Plain English. Okay.